0: The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. As uh, many of you all know, we are in a series called uh, Yahweh Saves that's going through the book of Isaiah. And as we go through this book, we are seeing the main message and keeping the main thing in which uh, the um, prophet Isaiah is, is, that Yahweh saves from judgment in his wrath by giving his people salvation and being gracious to them. Now many of us could struggle with that because we don't necessarily see impending judgment upon us, nor do we feel it. We don't necessarily feel ourselves being attacked by people or a nation, an army, that threatens our lives, and yet we are not crying out. Many of us are now crying out to the Lord because of this coronavirus, Um, and so my hands are ashy because I've washed them several times. Many of you may ask, what's ash? I'll explain that later. (laughs) That's a theological way I can explain that. Uh, However, being dark-skinned, a chocolate brother as myself, I suffer from that. Nevertheless, when we think about being saved from judgment, it is a struggle for us. And so when we look at our text and we actually look at the genre of our text, it is a poetic narrative that actually highlights more and more how Israel has acted and what God will do. How Israel has and been acting and what God will do. Now we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story and the expectation of what is to come. But if we were to set ourselves in this narrative, we have to ask ourselves in light of political upheaval what Isaiah is trying to highlight to people. In other words, in the midst of several kings, in the midst of several leaders that had uh, some that were good and some were bad, had influence on the people of Israel, it affected how they viewed God and God used those nations to judge the people of Israel. So when you think about that, oftentimes we can miss that when we look at our text because what we see is God being strong on his people. Remember, this is not necessarily uh, chronologically after the book of Deuteronomy. No, God is uh, speaking to his people while they are in exile and post-exilic, meaning post-exile. And so when you think about this, you have to understand it in the context of when Moses is trying to articulate to the people of God what they ought to be doing. Many a times we could be thinking obedience means salvation. Obedience does not mean salvation. Obedience is an act in which you do faithfully to a God that's faithful to you. So Israel struggled with this. But why did Israel struggle with this? Some of us need to go back and I would would encourage you to go back and read the first five books of the Bible. The reason you should read and particularly read Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Some of y'all are like, I don't wanna read Leviticus. Leviticus has a strong emphasis on helping us understand how the people of God worship. Exodus actually helps many of us understand how the people of God had come together and how God had made them a civil people around certain laws. These laws were given in order for the people of God to actually worship Yahweh, a personal God, in a way that brings glory to his name. Now, many of us cannot understand that because how free we are in our worship. But yet, there are ways that God has governed us and given us days, given us th- ways in order to worship Him, so that glory will be given to Him and not to ourselves. That's one of the main things I want us to hang our hats on this morning: is that we were created for worship. Many of us understand what the Westminster C- Shorter Catechism says that uh, uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever well we were not created for selfish worship then this is what i want to understand we were not created for selfish worship but selfless worship well what is selfish worship being today, uh, I love the message when I read this because at one point and when he's talking about the new moon, uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a translation about the message uh, and some of us may be like, well, is that, is that too far off? Remember, when you're thinking about translation, you're thinking about the equivalent of what they're trying to say to the original manuscript. The Masoretic text, meaning the Hebrew text, uh, people have translated the Hebrew text into the Septuagint, which is the Greek, and that the Greek is actually what you see in Aramaic in the New Testament. And so when you think about the message, it actually gives us some language that is far more dynamic, meaning not formal, not very wooden, but meaning it's very loose, but it's not uh, far off from what it's saying. So he says, at one point, I'm tired. God is saying I'm tired of your meetings. I'm tired of your conferences. I'm tired of all of this spiritual ritual the rituals that you're doing. I want you to think about this. Here is how we relate. Many of us are remember what I said casual and cultural Christians and the first thing we do is we jump to the first conference. We read the first blog. We do everything that we can to be in all of the Christian needs of our society to affirm what we're doing. But is it ritual or is it a change of heart? Is it ritualistic or is it a change of heart? This is the issue with Israel. The issue with Israel is when they are worshiping selfishly, They're doing all of the ceremonial, civil, and moral laws, right? Three uses of the law. I've explained that before. I won't use that time now. They've used those laws in order to benefit themselves, to glorify themselves. They've offered sacrifices, not in the name of Yahweh, not to proclaim or glorify Yahweh. They offered sacrifices in order to glorify themselves. What what, what do I think that this translates? Is when we use when we use phrases when we come to worship and we say I want to be fed I want someone to feed me I'm expecting the preacher to actually feed what I'm saying I'm expect, expecting the worship leaders to rev up in my heart to pump and prime me for worship my question is what have you been doing all week Has your heart really been transformed and changed this all week to where you're not pumped and primed because you're getting a good message, but yet you are actually preparing your heart, not because you're listening to 15 different preachers throughout the week. It's because you're actually delighting in the word of God and you're reading his word and allowing it to be doing work on your heart to prepare you for what is to come. But what we do is we pump on YouTube, we use every podcast and we try to find every single thing that someone else is doing the exegetical and the hermeneutic work for us instead of us trying to go to the Bible and understand what God is saying directly so that we can hear from the Lord is there something wrong with listening to podcasts or using extra biblical material in order to learn what and that's not what I'm saying so do not hear what I'm saying do not hear what I'm not saying what I am saying is is that I am for certain that our worf- worship oftentimes times is selfish because what we want out of it Three points I want us to understand, 10 through 12, selfless worship, selfish worship is worthless worship. Selfish worship is worthless worship. And then when you look at 13 through 17, I want you to understand that selfless worship is restorative worship. Selfless worship is restorative worship. And then my last point is through 18 through 20, which is selfless worship is admitting your sinful nature. I wasn't too creative on that at all. Uh, But selfless worship is admitting Uh, 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 your sinful nature. So when we look at this, it is difficult for me to do what I, I would really love to do is go line by line, precept by precept, because we'll be here for 15 days. But But I will highlight because this is a poetic narrative, highlight and lift up what it is saying. So I won't be able to do a a thorough, as thorough as I would see, treatment of this particular text. But when we start at verse 10, he says, hear the word of the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. The prophet is very clear every time, hear the word of the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. Why is that important? Because oftentimes we hear various different voices. We hear various different voices. We're not hearing God's word, we're hearing what we want to hear. Isn't it funny that we want to pick and choose what we want to hear? My son reminds me of this every time because he will ask me for something and if I don't give it to him, guess who he's gonna go ask? His mama. And I'm sitting right there. It's unbelievable. Daddy, can I have a sucker? No, son, can't have a sucker. Mommy, can I have a sucker? Did not just say, No, son, you can't have a sucker. And then, you know, when you're so mad that, that they just didn't being disrespectful, you're driving and you turn around and you're about to kill everybody in the car because you're mad at the child. <laughs> Selfish worship is worthless because oftentimes it's like walking into a dark room. And trying to feel yourself around groping for things when you're walking through that room cannot see what's in front of you and yet you're trying to feel yourself through the room and while you're trying to feel yourself through the room you're tripping and you're falling over different things and you try to open your eyes wider y'all all walk through a room that's dark before you try to open your eyes wider as if you're gonna see <laughs> you, you, you walking through the room and boom you trip over something and you can't see isn't that funny that you try to walk and seek direction that's unclear and you try to open your eyes wider without using the very tool that's uh, uh, next to you. Maybe a light. Isn't that what God's word is for us? A lamp unto our feet. A light unto our path helping guide us but oftentimes when we walk into worship and we use our se- we use worship for selfishness we are floundering in our darkness we're actually being a. we're actually prone more and more to trip and fall and trample over every distraction and everything that is not like God instead of trying to come and prepare ourselves for which God has given us a God guide, guide to prepare us for his word this also gets to our dependency as children this is why he says that you are like children, you're like the rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of your God. Again, hear the word, listen to the word, the teaching of the word, not just a didactic teaching, but making sure, like we said last week, that you know God in a very intimate way and not simply know God in a what? a knowledgeable way and that knowledge is only transferable and not transforming and this is what we see when he says you children are learning after the school of Sodom and Gomorrah and who is Sodom and Gomorrah they are the very detestable nations that God used to show his wrath is strong indicative of god's wrath coming among god's people and so for them they understood that and they've heard the stories even they fa- their families even experienced the turmoil and the trouble and the destruction and the wrath of god and so they know when god says or what, when when is when isaiah is proclaiming this god is saying you're distant from me and i'm not even pleased by your offerings which is their form of worship in fact, their worship is what? Worthless and disgusting to God. Listen to what he says in verse 11 and 12. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? The many sacrifices, all of the sacrifices that you bring to me, they're increasing. You give several sacrifices. What do they mean to me? What is your form of worship when you come in this place? What is our sacrifice of worship? What do we understand our sacrifice to worship to be? It is us offering praise to God. But what if God were to say your praise is not good enough? That your hearts aren't changed, your attitude hasn't changed. And so when you come in here and you try to sing, it's not good enough. It's not pleasing. It's not a sweet aroma unto unto me. And so you see God is saying, I have had enough, enough of your burnt offering of rams and the fat of the well-fed beast. And so the fat of the well-fed beast is like eating a marble, uh, or yeah, a marble steak, or a, uh, a a a rib. What what is a um uh yeah ribeye? <laughs> I just took my wife out for a birthday yesterday, and I took her out for a steak, so I forgot what I what, what we at. But but th- this is this is what he's saying that they were giving the best offerings. This is what he is trying to describe. The fat of well-fed beasts were uh, the best offerings. And he says, I do not delight in the blood of the bulls or the lambs or, or your goats. All of which are forms of worship to where God is saying, you have used your worthless worship with no change in your heart in order to make sure that you are appeasing me, but you are not worshiping me. That makes a significant difference because when we think about appeasing God we show up here saying showing up is just enough showing up is just enough doing doing is just enough But when God says, apart from me, John 15, you can do nothing, then you have to understand that in everything in your life, you can do absolutely nothing without Jesus. That mentality is a mentality that's absolutely dependent upon God. I think all of our sin nature, amen somebody, is that we will try to trust and depend on ourselves. We need to come to worship and we need to be reminded of God and in his word and what he does because so many times we struggle with self-sufficiency. We think self-sufficiency is an indicator that we're doing well. What God is saying, self-sufficiency is an indicator of when you're actually giving what you have that's best to me. Why would God ask for the best offerings in order for God, for the people to worship him? for them to give their last, for them to give their best, in order for that to be indicative of them trusting that God will supply their needs. Does that make sense this morning? Some of us are, here it is, in our worship of giving, tight in our giving, because we can't trust God. Let me get to our time. Some of us are tight with our time because we can't trust God. Let me get to our talents. Some of y'all, brothers, can sing and you don't want to be up here. And y'all need to be up here because you're tight with your talents. Adriana heard me on that one. (laughs) But, but, But some of us are tight with who we are and what we have, not realizing that we are full offerings to God. Our lives are worshipful, and so if we were just to do the rituals of, of, of our, the motions in worship, if we were just to do that, we're actually just worshiping other idols. And what are those other idols? Because it's, it's apparent that what God is saying is that you, not only have you come into my temple, look at what he says in verse 12, when you come to appear before me, the very presence of God, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you? This trampling of my courts. Essentially what he's saying is, you've brought other idols into my sanctuary, into the temple, and you worship them. Some of y'all may be thinking like, wow, the Israelites were crazy. Actually, it was, it's, it's just as, it's just the same as us bringing our idols in here. But they're in our hearts. And we worship them. Selfish, selfish worship. What are those idols oftentimes? They're partisan politics coming in the form of worship? Did your party, or did your politics, did those things become the very, very way in which you view the church? I'm going to be a part of this church if it's appealing to my partisan politics. What, what, What about the cafeteria form of worship that's taken form in many churches? that I'm going to walk down the aisle and pick and choose what I want to be a part of my worship. This is what the Israelites have done. This is exactly what they've done. Pick and choose the cafeteria style of worship, upholding what they vow, upholding what they desire and not upholding the very vows that they have taken before God, idol of control. Trying to manipulate God, trying to make sure you use your power by withholding Is an idol within itself but sometimes we think we make the excuse that our withholding is due to the fact of what we're dealing with we're we're family let us work through that together and I think that, that this is what the Bible teaches us the Bible teaches us how to work as a family because if we then trust each other then we are able to live in unity with each other and our worship becomes useful to one another. The connectedness of our worship cannot be useful if it is selfish. That's why it must be selfless. When we look at 13 through 17, sometimes I look at my clock and I'm like, oh, I got till 1130, but it doesn't mean I have till 1130, pray for me. (laughs) Point number two, selfless worship is restorative worship. When you look at verses 13 through 17, he says, bring no more vain offerings, incense, as an abomination to me. The new moon, some of y'all are struggling this morning and I see empty seats this morning because folks weren't able to set those alarm clocks or they didn't set the iPhone. But the new moon, and I don't wanna, I'm not gonna break down everything, but the new moon, just for you to understand, was, was the first day of the calendar. And they would look to the new moon, almost synonymous to the Sabbath, that it was the start of a new week. And so the new moon was a ritual, it was a festival, festival that they worship God. And he says, the new moon and the Sabbath and the calling of your convocations, I cannot endure. Iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moon and your appointment of feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. Selfish worship is a burden to God. And he hates it. It makes him weary. Look, he said, I am weary of bearing them. I want you to get this, that this level in which we all have in Memphis, I believe, one of the, how most highly populated ministry cities I've ever been in. People work in certain places and we say we are doing ministry in those spaces. My question to you is, is your ministry and is your work of doing good things only to be self-proclaiming? Right? Do you say that you do what you do in order for you to get glory instead of God getting glory? You know how that works out? It plays out in the way that we actually, getting to verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. It's actually carrying for the least of these. But but, but first you gotta look at 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the idols of your deeds from Uh, before my eyes there has to be repentance before you try to do something good because God only good comes from who God that's what the Bible says so when he says this washing it's this element in which I was just explaining to one of our young people today who is going to uh, we have several young people who went through kids discover and they're going to be baptized and take communion and as I was trying to articulate this, and talk to them, I, the Lord started touching my heart. Matter of fact, I was in a prayer room this morning, and I was praying, I was really praying to the Lord to move amongst us, to do some work in our hearts and our lives, and, and, but as they came, I believe God was really preparing me for my conversation for this young man. And as I was having the conversation, I began to talk about baptism. And then it made me remember the essence of baptism. That it's not just the, the notion in which you're cleansed, it's this notion in which God is, is a sign and a seal of the covenant faithfulness of our God. That when God baptizes a child, and your child is baptized and this individual, is not just making a profession of faith. Many of us surround that around being, making the simple profession. But if it was about the simple profession, we would miss the fact that it's not about what you're doing, it's about what he's doing in your heart. The regeneration starts in a miraculous way and as I'm talking to this child, he said something that stood out to me. He said, I pray to God and he always seems to answer my prayers. Isn't it funny how children can teach us about faith? That that very cleansing and washing and the repentance in our lives means that we relinquish the control, giving it over to God, trusting him to do what we cannot do so that he can transform our hearts. Some of us are not necessarily understanding the impact of that because it's hard for us to give up control. It's hard for us to make sure that God, the cleaning and the removal of the evil in our hearts is something that we try to do. Can I tell you, you don't have to do it no more. God says all you need to do is repent and believe. And as you believe, it is a manifestation in which you believe God not only will cleanse you, but he will begin to sanctify you progressively changing you. Some of y'all are like, I'm being sanctified by my children, my spouse, my girlfriend, boyfriend, mama, daddy, cousin, uncle, all that. Everybody sanctifying me, but can I tell you, nobody can sanctify you like Jesus. Cultural and, and, and casual Christianity doesn't necessarily adhere to this level of Repentance. And why do we say that this repentance needs to happen? Why does Isaiah emphasize this? Because the evil, like we've seen last week, in their hearts actually made them forget that they were raised to be children of God and not children of evil. Children of evil cannot recognize what's good. In fact, children of evil only capitalize and exploit those that are weak around them. This is why they cannot learn to do good or seek justice. What do I mean by that? It is so easy for many of us to have inferior relationships and capitalize on inferior relationships as opposed to as opposed to making sure that we have equal relationships that begin to sanctify us holistically. What do I mean by that? That everybody that you help doesn't necessarily need your help. They need you to point them to Jesus. What does it mean to learn to do good? What does it mean for them to to understand that after coming out of this ceremonial cleansing and him talking about this, it is what the scholar says that when they learn to do good, it's a new mind. It's a new mind. Not only is it a new mind, but when they begin to seek justice, you know what happens? They seek justice in a way that is transformative and restorative. Many of y'all have heard the term of restorative justice. I don't think that it started in a sociological instance. I believe it started with the Bible. It's 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 biblical justice. Not only does the scholar say this, it's this justice that actually judges what is right. It actually tells us what's right from what's wrong. And many of us need help to understand that because Romans 12, one through two helps us to know that I, when Paul says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as what living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual form of worship. I put form there, brackets. Do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is what is the will of God and what is good, what is good, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. I don't believe that we can do verse 17 effectively if we don't adhere to our vows together. One of our vows says that we actually uh, protect, protect the peace, the purity, and the unity of the church. The peace, the purity, and the unity of the church. I want you to think about that for a moment, because in any situation where you're trying to protect, what do you do? You're active. You're active. Everybody's active about protecting themselves from the coronavirus. Some of us, honestly, are, are, are laughing, but I, I mean, I'm walking through the airport this week and people got the bane mask on their face. They're walking around, everybody's scrubbing their hands half to death, protecting themselves from a virus that they believe will infect them and kill them. Can I tell you that trying to do justice and good your way selfishly is is just like the coronavirus it's just like the coronavirus it can affect us it can get in us and kill us divisiveness remember where I said last week rebellion I believe is a piece of division and and disunity it can, it's a virus that finds itself plugged into us and saying that I can't look out for the person next to me. Here's what I'm saying. If we can't do justice and learn to do good in our own household, amongst our own church family, how are we going to do it in South Memphis, North Memphis, East Memphis, Midtown? How are we going to do it in our nation? How, we, how can we leave this world, leave this, uh, uh, this nation and go to a different part of the world and try to seek justice, but we can't do it right where we are? How can't we see humanity in a restorative view and accept them in the Amago day, as, as, as human beings and love them and appreciate them? How can't we do it here, but we're so ready to do it somewhere else? It, it, it has to be done amongst, and seen amongst the people around us because the infiltration of sin, the infiltration of things that try to kill us will say to us that I don't need to care about the people around us, they're useless, so I ignore their present issues and I look to everything around me. I read Wall Street Journal and I try to get, I try to get, get excited about those issues. I read New York Times and I try to get excited about those issues. But can I tell you, that we have our own needs in our own church. We have people in our own church that, now I'm not just talking, I'm not talking about the people just like, because they're, they're, they are poor or they don't have, I'm talking because they, they, need, they need your love, they need your care. They need you to learn. We All of us need to learn to do good to one another. That requires us to think outside of ourselves. Selfless worship is restorative. When you begin to think outside of yourself, what the Bible says here is, you begin to understand what it means to learn. Remember what Jesus says, come to me? He gives the invitation to come to me, learn from me. And when we learn from Jesus, we begin to understand what it means to recline at tables that we don't necessarily want to recline at, right? Jesus sits amongst sinners. He says, I don't come for those that are, that, are, that are already healed, but I come to actually bring healing, healing, restoration to the broken. Those that are fatherless, those that are oppressed. I want you to understand what that means for us. What that means for us is being aware, about, aware of who is in our body. When's the last time you asked a brother or sister here how they're doing? And genuinely cared about how they're doing. Checked on them and followed up about how they're doing. Can I, can I admit something? Between our staff, we, we can't check on all of y'all. We need each other to check on one another. That's the first principle of learning how to do good. And now here's the justice. The justice is not just when we're looking out The justice is making sure that our needs here are taken care of. We want people to remember what the church has done for the families. And remember, because I know people have walked away from the church saying what the church has not done. Everybody is quick to talk about, the church hasn't been here for my family. The church hasn't done, uh, the church didn't feed my family. The church didn't care about my family. The church, they they talk bad about my ethnicity. The church did this about me. The church is this type of religion. The church is this, But, but I want us downtown to be a church that defies all of those lies that the devil is trying to implement in order for them to see that we seek to do justice. We come in this place looking Seeking, the command is an imperative that you actually, what can I do for you, Dammy? What can I do for you, Brother Ben? What can I do for you, Brother LG? What can I do for you, Sister Jay? How can I help you? You need anything this week. See, justice is, like, we, I think we confuse justice a lot of times with making sure that we help somebody that's outside of our context, when we sometimes need to learn how to do it here so then we can do it better in, this, in the community. Amen, somebody. Because sometimes we're hurting people and trying to do justice. And as we hurt people, we give them the wrong perspective. And then this correct oppression. Correct oppression. People around us are feeling measures of oppression. Some of y'all are like, I'm not feeling it. Things are well. Things are good. Yes, you are. You are feeling it in certain areas and you have to admit it. You have to admit it in certain ways, whether that is your marriage is struggling and you feel oppressed by the troubles in your marriage. Children, (laughs) you can feel burdened by your household. You can feel burdened and oppressed by your workplace and your job. And people around you can help you with that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you? Lead, bring justice to the fatherless. There are so many people around us that are very functional in their trauma. But they cannot believe in the Lord Jesus or God as Father because of their fatherless home. Very practically, We bring justice to fatherless homes by some of us making sure that we don't have to be daddies to every child but we can be parental big brothers. We can be figures and mentors in our own body before we try to go do it somewhere else. When we learn how to do it here, I guarantee, I don't guarantee a lot, but I guarantee we can do it outside of this community see this is where i believe when we look at and ignore this doing good we ignore our nursery when we know we ignore this bringing justice we ignore our children's ministry am i saying every child is fathers no but am i saying see am i mixing the fact that doing good doesn't necessarily mean somebody's oppressed you can do good to somebody that necessarily uh, feel as if they're experiencing injustice. You can do good to people that love Jesus. And then he says, plead the widow's cause. There are several widows who need individuals in the community, in our own community, to care for them plead their calls, meaning check up on them. And it's not just a widow, it's, it's our elderly. It's those that are that are, that are, that are old and more seasoned brothers and sisters that need us to just call them and sit with them and have a conversation with them. Miss Dorothy will tell you, I, I'll call her, Miss Dorothy talk to me. And I'll listen to Miss Dorothy. Because there's something that I know that I can gain from my older sister. I'm more seasoned in her faith, what does that mean, and what? How does that? How do I plead in her cause? And then I, whatever she need, is there something that that you need? Is there something that that I, that I can do, as a young man, that will care for you? Or y'all tracking with me this morning? I know I'm not gonna get 15 amens. I may get two amens. But, but this, this idea is for us to know how to care for those that are around us already as family before we try to do it in our local community, before we try to do it in our country and around the world. I want to emphasize that. Because here's what I believe. That, that we need to understand that justice has been perverted. Deuteronomy twenty four seventeen says this, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless or take the widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. So what is he saying? When you remember where you once were and you understand the depths of your sin, then your worship is restorative, in the form in which how you care for others. It's not perverted. The, the next point is is that selfless worship is admitting your sinfulness. When you look at verses eighteen through twenty, you have to ask yourself what is sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism helps us with this. If you don't use the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's a good tool to use, please use it. If you're trying to understand your theology and have a construct that'll give you better categories, use the Westminster Westminster Shorter, Shorter Catechism. It says, what is sin is the question. And the answer is sin is any want or conformity unto or transgression of any law of God, or you can say word of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. Thus, understanding the depths of your sin means then you recognize the areas in which you transgress God. When, 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 when Isaiah says, come now, let us reason together, that is legal language. Let us reason together, says the Lord. He's using legal language to say that he actually has an answer for the problem. But he says, though, I want you to recognize, your sins are like scarlet. They shall be white as snow, if you reason with me. They have become, they, they, though they are like crimson, your sins are like crimson. But they could be white wool. If you reason with me and verse 19 says if you're willing and obedient you shall eat the good of the land but if you refuse and rebel you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken look at how you book end it hear the word of the Lord for the mouth of the Lord has spoken let me teach you on this right here that when you think about sin You have to understand that, first of all, you are depraved individuals. You have no inherent goodness about you. And so when you understand that you are reasoning with God according to his law, according to his word, and thus you transgress it, when you confess your sins, sometimes you're spacing out and you can't even search for the things that you feel as if you've transgressed, that you've crossed the line, that you've done against God's word. But that oftentimes happens when you just search for it in a moment. I want you, during your time of fast this week and during your prayer this week, to always ask God to search your heart. When God begins to search your heart, what happens is you begin to see the ugliness of your heart. When I am talking to children about their sin, Oftentimes, it's hard to look at kids as as sinful individuals because you said they're they're innocent or they don't know. But it's not about their awareness of their sin. It's about their depravity. I think we kind of do that ourselves. If we're not aware of our sins, then we don't confess our sins. We need to confess what we are not aware of by simply knowing what we can be Subject to. Am I teaching y'all this morning? I, it, hey, somebody said no. Uh, so let me, let me, here's an example. Uh, the celebrity, Anthony Bordeaux, he talks about his hedonism. Cultural, I believe this is where cultural and casual Christianity falls in, into play. He says that, uh, look, I understand that inside me is a greedy gluttonous, lazy hippie. What Pete Nelson at? Hippies, shout out to the hippies. He know I love him, he know I love him. First hippie I ever met in my life. He says, you know, I understand that there's a guy inside me who wants to lay in bed and smoke weed all day and watch cartoons and old movies. I could easily do that. My whole life is a series of plans to avoid and outwit that guy. I'm aware of my appetite and I don't let them take charge. When asked how should a man handle regret and what's his biggest regret, Bardo replied, he said, regret is something you've got to live with you can't drink it away. You can't run away from it. You can't trick yourself out of it. You've just got to own it. I've disappointed and hurt people in my life, and that's just something I'm going to have to live with. You eat that guilt, and you live with it, and you own it, and you, uh, you own it for life. Bordeaux knows something inside of him or he knew something inside of him was sinful when you don't know that you walk into a world tricking yourself everything thinking you have something inherently good that is what we learn from the people of israel that their obedience is not salvation by works Their obedience and willingness is to adhere to the command of washing themselves, repenting of what they have. He thinks regret is repentance, but repentance is not regret. Repentance is turning. You don't live in regret. You live knowing that God is coming to redeem That's why when you're in worship, it's okay to admit your sinfulness. It's okay to admit that some of you husbands have in your minds cheated on your wives and wives cheated on your husbands and some of you have lusted after one another. Some of you have failed to forgive the other brother or sister, some of you are so ugly and nasty on the inside you said things about somebody that you wish you would nobody would ever know but those dark and ugly parts of your life Those dark and ugly parts of your life are ways in which you lay them down at the altar of Christ. Don't hold on to them in shame. Repentance helps you walk through your shame, come out of it, and know that the guilt, when they see the blood of animals spilled, it is a blood blood guilt offering. And we already know the end of the story. That Jesus came to give that blood guilt offering so that your repentance is not a repentance that's just filled with regret, but your repentance is a repentance that's filled with heartfelt travesty and guilt and knowing that God is the only only person that can wash it away can't wash it away anymore by trying to will yourself. God says he'll make it look like snow. He'll make it look like wool. But this is what I want you to know. That you need to obey me. Not obey me by trying to be a legalist. You need to obey me by revering me and honoring me and loving me and caring for me. And not just me but for my people. This is what children teach us. They teach us how to forgive. Have you ever been a parent and you sought forgiveness from your child? It's so humbling. Because the very thing that you felt as if you were justified in, the very thing that you felt that you could have done better, you got to ask your two-year-old, your five-year-old, your 15-year-old, your 25-year-old, can you please forgive me? Can I tell you something? Encourage you. When you do that, it is a sign that you understand what Jesus did for you. But your rebellion, resistance to it, it leads you right to the food that you're not supposed to eat. We need to do that as a body. We need to do that in order for us not to fall into the trick that deceives us about our own selves, that we have something good. Remember, God didn't create us for selfish worship. He created us for selfless worship. So let us do that restoratively. Let us do that with integrity. And let us do that knowing that we are inherently sinful, but yet saved by grace. Amen, somebody. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Uh, And God, I pray that we come here this morning, offering to you the very sins of our hearts and the very things that we have as idols and control and power, we give it to you, Lord. And I pray, Jesus, that our worship is impacted by the God that we know. And we glorify you in every way, Lord Jesus. Knowing that we want that rabbinical benediction to fall upon us so where your face is shining upon the beloved. Amen. For we love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, Hallelujah! Lord. All God's people said together.